Dr. Farid, assalamu alaikum and shukran so much for joining us. I appreciate your time given that you are obviously not feeling 100% at the moment. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you um, for having me on the, the show and thank you to your listeners. I am uh, isolating, so I apologize beforehand. I've, got a, I've still got a bit of a, an upper respiratory tract um, infection. So I apologize obviously beforehand if um, I don't come across as, as clearly as I not a problem at all. I'm sure our listeners can, can make out quite fine. Uh, Dr. Farid, can you perhaps paint us a picture of what you've been seeing at your hospital as the second wave now started to take hold? So the interesting about this virus and, you know, obviously the timeline that we've, we as doctors, all of us across not just the Western Cape but across the world have, have noticed is that we are now in the Western Cape fully, fully in a second wave. And the scary thing that we are starting to see, and we've already seen it, is that this wave is so much worse than the initial one. And just to to sort of give you an understanding and give you a perspective, um, I'm perhaps in a unique position is that I was one of the original physicians at the CTICC uh, with its original onset. We were used to, you know, realizing what the gravitas of the situation was when the first wave started. And we were used to dealing with numbers um, in terms of, you know, when the initial first wave presented itself and we were used to those things. But what we are seeing now is so much worse. And as I noted, that the difficulty is not so much in the fact that we cannot manage covid as an entity in itself, the problem is the volume of patients mm-hmm. that we are seeing on a day-to-day basis. And that's where the problem lies. We are trying our best. Every single doctor is working to their core to ensure that everyone is managed as best as possible. But the sheer volume of patients makes that extremely, extremely difficult. Dr. Farid, now tell us, how do doctors then make rational decisions on who must be admitted um, so just to understand, the Brackengate Center, who at the time of its creation, was designed to mitigate the response or to try and decant the amount of active admissions that were happening, that is happening currently at our, our institution. So, you know, we decant from about 11 hospitals on a day-to-day basis. That's obviously ramped up significantly. It has ramped up significantly in the last week. Um, And what that basically means is that when patients are admitted to your standard hospitals, such as Tigerberg, Grotteskier, Mitchell-Splain, Somerset, Victoria, to name a few, they are overwhelmed by the amount of people that are presenting. So patients that have been admitted, patients that are currently being managed, and patients that are hopefully relatively stable are then discussed with us on a day-to-day basis to try and decant them and move them over to us so that we can continue management on our side. The decision on who comes across is a a discussion between uh, the various physicians on each of the platforms. So we try our best to obviously get as many patients as we can across from the various institutions, but it means that we have to obviously maintain equity. We have to be able to provide an equal amount of, of numbers across the platform so that Every single unit can be managed appropriately and, and, and easily. But you, you do realize that some of the units, and when I'm talking about some, I'm saying the smaller units, even if we take five or six patients in a day, that has a huge, huge impact on them because it means that they can 
decanting ECs, which may be quite small com- comparatively to, say, Tigerberg and Grotteskia. So we, we accept on, on average at least 50 to 55 patients on a day. That's usually run by a small tight group of, of very dedicated clinicians. And we try our best to maintain the standard across the platform to provide the best service to everyone that, that comes through our doors. I understand that even hospitals in the private sector are now overburdened and they're also redirecting you know, their patients to state facilities. Have you seen that um, at Buckingate as well? So we haven't seen it formally, but obviously with discussions uh, across the platform, there have been various instances where, you know, private institutions have been so overwhelmed that they've needed to ask for assistance. We we try and provide that assistance where best possible, but, you know, you do realize that there are lots of complexities around admission with, within the state versus the private sector. So, yes, we where, where possible, we, we do try our best. And the reality is, is that, yes, that, that is absolutely the case. The, the private ICUs are full and brimming. The state ICUs are full and brimming. There is a waiting list um, for patients requiring high care and ICU, and that is just the reality on the ground. And I think it's important for your listeners to understand that it's never an issue about who we can and who we cannot treat um, we will treat everybody that comes through the doors. The difficulty is having the space to give them the appropriate management for those patients that are exceptionally sick, but those that need high care, those right. that need high flow units, those that need uh, an ICU, those that need intubation. Um, it's a question of not whether we can. We absolutely can. We just do not have the space for it. And, and that's where the difficulty lies. Yeah. Um, so originally, when we spoke about, you know, level five lockdown and we spoke about shutting the country down, I know that was an extremely difficult decision at the time that our president made with the first with the first wave, obviously. What that helped do essentially and originally was flatten that curve. Right. And, and I think it's important that people understand what that means. And, and I'll reiterate, I'm sure most of you, your listeners have heard this several times, but I think it's just important for me to put that out there. We don't expect people not to get sick. All we expect is that the amount of people that come is lengthened over a period of time so that it allows all our hardworking doctors enough time to manage those patients that are in hospital, to manage those patients that are able to be discharged on a day-to-day basis. And it just gives us a bridge or a time frame that we can manage them um, effectively. Um, but when you've got 100 or 200 or 300 admissions in a day, you realize that that, that becomes extremely difficult. All right, so so let's actually get into that. Um, the Premier's statement this week saying that the province will soon have uh, 744 beds uh, into the system, uh, 336 beds at the Hospital of Hope being Brackengate. How do you make sense of this? And, you know, what was your response to, to seeing this statement? So I think the, the important thing is to understand is that when I originally put out that, that tweet, I certainly didn't expect the, the reaction that, that it received. It's a, it's a complex system in terms of how data 
uh, is obviously processed across the platform. And with all due respect, Premier is doing his utmost. I have the utmost respect for him, for our department. They're doing an excellent and fantastic job of, of ensuring that every single citizen of the country is managed and certainly the Western Cape is managed as best as as they can. But these are are difficult times and times change very quickly. So so my concern at the time was the semantics around that that document. The issue was not so much that the beds are available. Of course the beds were available, but the original article um, suggests that those were new beds. I think it's important to understand that those aren't new beds. Those beds were originally there and they are still there from from the first wave. And that was my concern in that I and most of my colleagues were aware of this, but it was just important for me to express that the general public realizes that, that this was the case. Having said that, though, it does not mean that there aren't any new beds available. In fact, there are new beds being made as we speak. I've been told that there's 100 beds that is actually open as we speak at at Frisia Ward in uh, Mitchell's Plain. Yeah. They're going to be starting with about 20 beds a day, and they're going to you know, slowly escalate up as the need is there. So it, it was never an, an indication of mine to try and you know, sort of or go against that response. It was just, an, you know, to kind of get the semantics of the, the article correct, to say that those beds were not new beds. They've always been there. It was extremely encouraging to see that us that are on the front line, that our, our voices are heard. The Premier was extremely kind enough to, to contact me. Okay. Uh, to have a discussion, and we had a frank and open discussion. Mm. I think, you know, as as the subsequent system went on, we, I mean, you realized there was a, a second statement that went out, which corrected the, the semantics around that. Um, the Premier gets his information, obviously, from the MEC, and that gets given every day via the, the individual hospitals. Yeah. So so those, you know, it's a, it's a complex system. And, and I think the, the understanding was around the semantics of that mm. article or the statement rather than, than the actual values within that. Those beds are available. They're being used every day. And as I said, Platform is doing its absolute, its absolute best to ensure that, that every single citizen is, is given, you know, the best um, care available. Yeah, on that point, you know, my it really boggles the mind. Uh, reading President Ramaphosa speaking to healthcare workers at Kailicha Hospital, you know, apologizing to them and saying, "We are sorry that we couldn't do more to assist healthcare workers during this time." Was that not the point of having the hard lockdown that you would be able to prepare the health system so that we would not overburden our healthcare workers? Do you think that you know this process has been completely ineffective because right now it doesn't seem as though we were prepared for the second wave? No, I I wouldn't necessarily say that we haven't been prepared for the second wave. Um, I will say that out of all of it, what what has been important to understand is that with the end of the first wave, and I would use the word end in inverted commas, with the, the lull of the first wave, when we started seeing a persistent decline in numbers. You you must understand that in terms of our processes, the normal processes of every hospital had to take precedence. There were a lot of patients without COVID that had not been able to get into hospitals for an extended period of time. So, you know, normal patients who required surgeries, elective surgeries that were held off because of the COVID response, patients who would go to the usual chronic units um, on a day-to-day basis, those had to be closed. We had to ensure 
that those processes started opening up again. The difficulty for us is that at the time that the first or the second wave started mitigating, you know, or started initiating and getting and getting more, the amount of volume that we were seeing on a day-to-day basis, you know, that exponential climb happened so rapidly that to then go back and reduce all of those things was extremely difficult. Mm. So I, I am thankful of the fact that we were still able to do that within the time period allotted to us. I will say that it, it was reactionary, but it was still at a point where I think that it has been done within you know, the best, best possible manner. And the fact that, that the government's still trying their best to, to ensure that these numbers of beds go up on a day-to-day basis yes. is, uh, is certainly um, encouraging. Yes. Now, now, as part of that thread on Twitter, you know, there was a moving statement in which you spoke about the impact on your, your colleagues, obviously the mental and physical impact that the second wave has had on your colleagues and the fact that while in isolation, you're actually working in order to, you know, take a little bit of the, the weight off them. What has been the impact on healthcare workers, particularly the colleagues that you work with? Yeah, look, the healthcare system is strained and our colleagues are extremely tired it's been an extremely long year. The doctors on the floor, they are absolute heroes, every single one of them. They work way beyond the usual hours of nine to five. We don't know what a nine to five is. Even when we get home, we aren't able to properly shut down because you're trying to mitigate and and fix whatever's you know been lacking from the day before just so that you know you can keep up with the next day. And that is not just a reality for, for Brackenhead, but it's a reality across the platform. And these amazing individuals are working night and day under severe strain to ensure that everybody is, is looked after. And, and not so much so, I mean, I, I can only speak, and I speak primarily for the doctors, but you have to take into account the nurses as well. They are absolute angels, absolute angels. We see our patients perhaps, you know, three to four hours on a day-to-day basis when we go through our rounds, we make our decisions, we, you know, improve things, we write up medications, but the nurses are there 24-7. They, you know, wash them, they clean them, they move them around, they ensure that they are looked after with dignity and class. And, um, you know, this is a day-to-day occurrence in anyone. So we are, we are absolutely shattered. We are, we are tired. Mm. Um, we don't get to celebrate um, weekends and going out as, as we should, mm. um, simply because the work continues. The people are there. Corona, you know, SARS and COVID does not care whether it's 2021. It doesn't care whether it's a weekend. It doesn't care whether it's night. It doesn't care whether it's day. So this is a reality on the ground for all of us. Dr. Farid, do you think the Western Cape government, the health department, should improve its staffing strategy to be able to circumvent all these, these issues that we're seeing now? I think the Western Cape government is doing its absolute best um, to ensure that that does happen and it's happening on a day-to-day basis. We've been asking for uh, an increased um, staffing quota for a period of time. Uh, We have uh, been given assurances, I have certainly, as well as the clinical managers have been given assurances um, that those staffing capacities have gone up and we've seen that. Um, we've, We've received um, extra assistance um, on the board from several medical officers that, that have joined us um, from the from the first. 
um, and we will be getting more um, uh, consultants on, on on the floor as well. And I think this is improve. You know, it is improving uh, across all the various platforms. So, so yes. As I said, the Western Cape government is doing its utmost to try and, and, and mitigate that, you know, that this initial response and to try and you know, combat it as, as best as possible. Um, with all systems, one, one must understand that these, you know, setting up a hospital, setting up a new facility, setting up um, enough oxygen ports is not a one-day operation. It doesn't happen overnight. There are several, several um, entities that have to go into place to ensure that these facilities are safe, that these facilities are standardized up to scratch, that we have enough what's known as oxygen reticulation to ensure that enough flow happens when we provide oxygen. Oxygen is a, at this point in South Africa, it's still defined as a scarce resource. We're using about 52% of the total capacity yeah. um, on a day-to-day basis, and that is expected to increase as time goes on. So it's a scarce resource, which means that we still need to be ensure that when we provide that, we are providing it as effectively for as many people as possible. When you look at a standard high-flow machine, a standard wall-mounted oxygen will give you a maximum rate of about 15 liters per minute. The high-flow machines run at about 60 liters per minute. So you can understand that if you are running six to seven high-flow machines on a single line, that has to be absolutely correct to ensure that those low volumes go through. Now, there's a lot of engineering that goes far beyond my my capacity to understand, but you, you do realize that we have to make absolutely sure, and the government has to make absolutely sure that that is correct before we can even initiate patients into that. Yeah. That isn't a one-day process. Um, so the fact that these beds are coming up slowly and the fact that you know both the Premier as well as um, you know, the, the powers that be have done that and have, are continuing to do that is encouraging. And, and you know, part of my, my initial uh, response was n- not just to basically make the public aware of what we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, but it's also part and parcel of, of making people understand that the capacity that we deal with on a day-to-day basis is really a factor of how much staff we have and also how much capacity we have um, on an ox- from an oxygen base, from the nursing point of view, from the doctor's point of view. And we are doing yeah, our, our absolute best to try that. But part of that discussion and part of that response is to obviously tell the public, please do your best to help us help you. Dr. Farid, it's been very, very informative. Shukran so much for sharing this pertinent information with us. We wish you complete shifa and our hats off to to yourself and all the frontline workers that are sacrificing their own lives to to help others. Thank you very much for having me on the show. And as a a closing, just note out there, um, I know that human nature is such that we've all had a hard year. We've all had a difficult year. People have lost families. People have lost loved ones. And we can't forget that, you know, everyone that comes into our institution is somebody's mother, somebody's father, somebody's brother, somebody's sister, somebody's child, somebody's husband, somebody's wife. They are are people that we are trying our utmost to to assist. And and therefore, our consistent uh, response has been that 
It's always been about PPE, but the biggest thing around that is it's PPB, which is personal protective behavior. If you can mitigate yourself and if you can ensure that you yourself are safe and you are accountable for everyone else around you, then inshallah, with Allah's mercy, inshallah, we will go forward and we will will conquer this. Um, I've said that my colleagues are absolute heroes and South African doctors are made of stone and steel and grit and our allied workers are are absolutely amazing in, in what they do every day. So to your listeners out there and to those that are listening, we ask that you you just do your best out there. Be accountable for yourself. Be accountable for those loved ones around you and just give us a chance to do the best for the most. Enjoy.